Hi, I'm Paul Camillos. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin for Series 4 of Shooting the Breeze. We cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. During this series we'll be covering the FIBA Women's World Cup where the 12 best teams of the planet are coming to Sydney. And of course, we'll be covering Australia's longest running women's professional sporting league, the WNBL, in its 43rd season. Hit that subscribe button, like and review so we can get more Hoops content to you. Having people that can walk the walk and talk the talk, and I've already said this already, that's just set the example by everything, whether that be in the community, whether that be public presentations and public speaking or running camps. We're incredibly blessed with the, the level of leadership we have within this group and experience, but that's just across the board. I mean, that's literally from player number one to 18th. In this episode, we're talking with Bendigo Spirit head coach, Kennedy Kariyama, who leads a team with one of the most experienced leadership groups in the WNBL. Having taped this just before the start of round 13 and their bruising defeat by the Boomers, Coach Kennedy prophetically alluded to danger games from hungry teams such as the UC Caps and the Sydney Flames, exactly what this round delivered, with an overtime win for the Caps and a one-point upset by the Flames at John Kane Arena, Coach Kennedy nailed it. It's a tough WNBL season, games are tight and there's not much separating the top five teams with upsets and injuries that will tip the balance in the run-up to the playoffs. He takes the approach of one game at a time. We're grateful that Coach Kennedy takes a moment to reflect on the season as well as sharing some of his hard-earned lessons in the journey from New Zealand to the WNBL, including coaching the New Zealand national women's team, the Tall Ferns, and the WNBL's first Kiwi team. He tells us about his respect for fellow WNBL coaches and the often lonely road they share at the elite level, as well as the key people on his coaching journey that helped shape his coaching style that's reflected in the spirit's identity. Enjoy. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me, as always, with my co-host Jacinta Govind. We've got a special guest tonight from the Bendigo Spirit, Coach Kennedy Kariyama. Coach Kennedy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me, Paul and Jacinda, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, to diving into wherever this conversation can possibly take us. <laughs> we'll just sort of start off. I mean, you've been coaching in women's basketball for a long time, and you've been at uh, Bendigo this season. First question I want to ask you is, this season, how have you found the competitiveness of the league? Yeah, I, it's it's been... It's been a great league. I mean, goodness, there's there's just no no easy games, um, and I mean, certainly the last round's probably a great indicator of that. You know, most games were within anywhere between one point to four points. Uh, that's just I'm not going to say that's unheard of. I mean, there's certainly been plenty of competitive uh, seasons in the WNBL, but uh, as far as games go, I mean, every every game's a danger game, um, and I certainly think from you know this this last whether it's five games or seven game stretch for teams um, heading towards the back end of the season, there are a lot of danger games and certainly you wouldn't want to be in a position where you're 
you're coming across a, a very hungry Capitals team or a, a surging Lightning team who came off a, a game where they almost beat Southside last round. So there's, there are plenty. I mean, Sydney, obviously, much the same. They, they came very close to getting uh, Perth as well. So, I mean, there are some very, very good basketball teams out there right now that perhaps aren't vying for finals, but certainly uh, are playing very good basketball. Do you feel like the level of competitiveness has changed a lot? Because you've been a coach in the league for a long time in various roles. Do you feel like the level of competitiveness has changed over your career with the WNBL? I, I definitely think the ability to bring in star-studded WNBA players and retain Opals players to Australia has certainly increased. And, and perhaps that with the surging amount of of young talent in Australia has certainly created a more competitive platform for the WNBL. We're probably in a, in a situation where we have some very experienced players in the league. I mean, you know, anyone that's probably sitting in that window of 30, 30 plus, I mean, you, you, for example, you can use Tess Levy as a, as a 30 year old, been to two Olympics um, within our program, but then you've got these 20-year-olds um, that are starting to surge now and make their mark on the league, whether they be an, an, an Abby Warung or a, you know, your, your Steph Talbot, who obviously has, has been through, I mean, and she might even be younger than that. I think Talbot is pretty pretty young. But then Ali Wilsons and Alicia Follings. I mean, I'm just naming off some of the players within within my group here at the Spirit. But I think there's, there's a lot of talent. And then you, you look at the kids in the early 20s and younger, you got your Jade Melvins and your Shanice Swains and the list goes on. So Isabel Borle is 19 years old, Nadio Pouch. I mean, there is just talent galore in Australia right now. So a pretty pretty damn exciting window of, um, of basketball to be a part of right now. One of the things I find really interesting about the quality of the talent that we've got in Australia is, as you said, rightly, it goes across the full age range and what it says to me is that there's so much potential for Australia to be able to be a real powerhouse in, in women's basketball, particularly over the, the next few years and as players start coming back from the college system in the US as well. How do you think that's going to make things more complex for coaches in terms of scouting the rosters that you're going to want coming up because there's going to be such a huge pool of talent to be able to, to pick from? Yeah, well, I, I guess I'll start by saying I, I actually think Australia has been a powerhouse in basketball. For, I mean, certainly being the former coach of the New Zealand program and getting my backside kicked by anywhere between 50 points to I think the closest we've got is 16. And we might be Q coach the team pre-2008. We got our first win in about 100,000 years. As far as I've ever seen it from my perspective, Australia has, has always been a powerhouse and certainly has been within one of the top three to five teams to beat. And, I mean, of course, there's always going to be the USA and, and their talent speaks for itself, but you probably go beyond USA. And, and the honest reality is that most teams internationally, everyone knows who the Opals are. Everyone knows who Lauren Jackson is. You could just – everyone knows Christy Howard. Everyone knows who Michelle – Everyone internationally, the, the Australian level of basketball, the Opals, is, are, they're so incredibly respected internationally. And the if you're not if you're playing Australia, everybody, and I'm, this is what I explain to anyone that that's played for the Opals that I've ever crossed paths with, is they've got to understand that they're going to get their everybody's best. Everybody, you want to beat USA, you want to beat Australia. And so I, I actually think Australia 
is and has been a powerhouse for, for some time. Um, however, in terms of the, the second part to your question around in terms of how difficult it's going to be for coaches to recruit, retain um, and, and figure out what's best, I guess every coach is probably going to have their, their own system that that's you know whether that be system based on a style of play or offensive or defensive structure or you know the the types of coaches that will recruit a certain type of player that's going to complement their team and 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 try and build a a structure around their roster (laughs) there are so many so many talented players and i think for i think most coaches generally speaking i mean in an ideal sense are always trying to build their, their local stocks up first. I think most things, you know, you're always going to look within what's here in Australia, what have I got locally, what's within Australia, and then if there's a need outside of that that we can't fulfil um, with national talent, um, then perhaps we're looking overseas. And so for me, probably at the end of this season number one with the spirit here is about, you know, we probably would be looking more insular as to, well, this is what we've got, we're really happy with this. We need to retain X amount, which, you know, would obviously be absolutely as many as we possibly can. And sometimes for whatever reasons you can't retain, you know, at the end of the day, if, if someone gets a, a an amazing offer elsewhere, maybe that'd be the Euro League or maybe that'd be with another WNBL club, that's the best situation for them. I think, you know, you've got to be big enough to shake their hand and wish them well and send them with your best wishes and, and, and certainly give the... You know, you never want to burn bridges, I think, and that's that's probably where I'm going with that is you always want to leave the door open to potentially having someone back. But I certainly know from my perspective, I've been incredibly happy with, with our group. And, yeah, although there's still five regular season games to go and all going to plan uh, postseason basketball, we'll be working really hard at the spirit to retain as much as we possibly can. Yeah, I mean, from last season to this season, you've managed to retain a, a pretty significant portion of the of the roster. How do you feel that stability has helped, particularly this season, in the way Bendigo's been playing and where you're positioned in the ladder? I think, first and foremost, and I've said this before and I'll happily say it on record again, I've really admired the way Tracy had this group playing last year. They were just tough. They were gritty. They were just relentless and they worked. They worked for 40 minutes. You know you know that when you played the Spirit last season, it was going to be a, a tough 40 minutes that you had to work for possession by possession. Um, they were a tough proposition. And I, I think to some extent there was a really good amount of that DNA left within the, the group when we retained a large amount of them. And then obviously what that group needed was probably more guided leadership and some extra depth within certain areas. I mean, obviously, I think Megan McKay did an amazing job, an outstanding job for the group last year as the sole big. So, you know, we obviously had to try and add some experience around her that could complement her her skill sets. And, you know, outside of that, it was, you know, I don't think the, again, and it wasn't due to probably any type of or, or lack of trying the league in general shot its lowest ever percentages last year. They were really low percentages. I mean, you know, the Lynx led the league by a percentage and it was in the very mid-40s, whereas this year most teams are shooting the ball sub-mid-40s and some in the early 50s. So mm. I, I think that we needed to complement some players around Meg's interior presence with players that could shoot the ball. And so we've spent a lot of time around that and then trying to put a system in place that created space and allowed there to be creativity. So I think that... Although the, the, the core group, a good amount of the core group's been kept here, obviously 
implementing a, a robust leadership group and experience and certainly championship winning experience and bringing, you know, your KGs and Kelly Wilsons in that have been really, really pivotal and important to the spirit program. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised at the beginning of the season when KG left Canberra and, and came to Bendigo. Not that, you know, surprised that players move, but, you know, the fact that after so much time at Canberra, she moved along. And you've, you had a couple of other really good pickups at the beginning of the season. How did you find bringing those new players into the mix really kind of helped to settle the team in for the obvious run that you've made into the, the postseason? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, and again, certainly there was never, I wasn't a part of obviously the Spirit program prior to this year. So for me, it was a matter of a certain amount of, of players had been retained and we just need to have some understanding of to where we, we thought we could continue to build on that that foundation that had effectively been set. So, I mean, bringing in KG was, I mean, certainly wasn't as easy as uh, my situations it wasn't just a done deal and a handshake and a conversation. Kelsey's an, an incredibly intelligent human being. And and I think for me, the sell was about, you know, can you come here and help us build this program into a, a championship winning contender on a regular basis? And can you bring your leadership in? We've got this great young group of talent here that you can really help shape and mould. And, you know, can we get back into the community? And I think obviously given... Kelsey's first of all championship winning experience both with the Canberra Capitals and then obviously the Bendigo Spirit I think the Spirit was always a home um, and certainly where where Kelsey spent a large number of her, her earlier years in the WNBL so I think there was there's always been a, a certainly an emotional attachment to some extent to the Spirit program and you know, maybe I was able to leverage on some of that <laughs> to some extent. And but I think also the the selling point of where the program is, SEN taking over, that picture of being able to really build a a program that not so much from the ground up again, because I you know, again, with all due respect, BSL and and, and those who had run it in basketball men ago had done a a pretty damn good job of putting a, a number of great things in place. So it wasn't certainly like we're walk, walking into um, ground zero, build a stadium and yeah. <laughs> start from scratch. There were there were some really good pieces there. And, and I think that there's, you know, really what it just needed was, again, that the right leadership and the right playing group and, and right extra pieces that could help perhaps springboard it to, to the next uh, evolution of the program. I want to wind things back a little bit. This is going to be an interesting journey. How did you find your way from Canterbury in New Zealand <laughs> to country Victoria with quite a number of stops along the way, let's be honest? <laughs> yep. It's an interesting story, um, and I can, give, I can give you the really short version of it. Um, the way I actually came into coaching, I played, I played like, most coaches, I wouldn't say I played to an incredibly high level. I, I played to a, a representative level in New Zealand and, and played for some junior national teams. I was, again, by no shape or form uh, a superstar. And through high school, I actually went to, um, was identified for, it was called the Southern, Southern Institute of Technology. It was a, you think of it as a 
the most watered-down version of the AIS you could possibly ever think of, and it was for elite basketball players and elite golfers, believe it or not. And I still play golf now, and, and I'm probably still a better golfer than I am basketball player, and I'm a pretty horrible golf player. Um, so I was actually part of an elite sport performance group, and, and effectively what that went from was with a, a certificate in elite sport performance to a diploma in elite sport performance, and the natural progression from that was actually – a degree in sports coaching or a bachelor of sports coaching at the uh, Christchurch College of Education, which is now merged with um, the University of Canterbury. And through that very first initial um, certificate in elite sport performance, a part of that module was to actually coach a team. And so at that stage, I was still playing at a pretty decent level. And part of that was, yeah, I got thrown into an all-girls school of all things, an all-girls school, Christchurch Girls High School, one of the most successful women's basketball programs and school basketball programs in New Zealand. And I ended up spending eight years there working in that school program, um, funny enough, and then just slowly worked my way through high performance in juniors through under 12 boys to under 12 girls, 14s, 16s, 18s, 21s. And then just by some miracle one day <laughs> in 2006, the CEO of Canterbury Basketball decided that they were going to bid for a WNBL license. <laughs> we ended up getting a WNBL license in Christchurch, New Zealand, of all places. And it just so happened to be in 2007, 2008, which was a build-up to the 2008 Olympics. And at that stage, Lee Gooding, who uh, I believe is yep. currently working with um, high performance within Basketball Australia still, yeah, he was the assistant coach with Mike McHugh. And just through all the high-performance coaching junior national teams, performance programs, et cetera. Um, they identified me as the the local coach to assist Lee with this WNBL team. And so to cut a long story short, I ended up assisting in the WNBL as a 22-year-old, I think it was at that stage, with the Christchurch signs, which was the same year that the Bendigo Spirit actually came in the league, believe it or not. So real small, uh, intricate piece of information that's probably useless to the rest of the basketball community. And... From there, what happened was we had this WNBL program. It was run on the smell of an oily, oily rag. It was the amount of hoops we had to jump through, all the financial cost it would have taken to run that team. I mean, that first year, we had to pay for every Australian team to come to New Zealand. And, you know, so you can imagine that, obviously, uh, it could cost a lot. I couldn't tell you all the numbers. That just wasn't my job. I was literally the guy that gave up 60 hours a week to coach for free, but... It was like, this is the WNBL, and I, I knew the magnitude of the situation. You know, we were just uh, – I mean, New Zealand didn't even have a New Zealand Women's League at that stage. There was no New Zealand Women's League. We've only just got a New Zealand Women's League last year. So you would think from 2004 to 2005, there was no New Zealand Women's League. All of a sudden, we have a WNBL program. We don't even have the foundation to build on it. But what it was was it was a great preparation for the New Zealand national team to prepare themselves for the 2008 Olympics, which I was also an assistant coach with, again, with, with Mike McHugh under uh, his tenure. So that's the way sort of it came into me getting a greater understanding of basketball in Australia, what it's about. I mean, all I can remember was the Adelaide Lightning were just amazing that season. Tracy Gahan and you know, Renee Camino, and they were just me and Yuli. I mean, me and Yuli were sorry still at the Institute at that stage. I think with Kayla George, but it was just they were just amazing. I mean, Sam Wilson was still running around and dominating. So, long story short, I, I, I got this amazing snapshot into what basketball could be because 
In New Zealand, there was just nothing. There wasn't any basketball. And I'm like, wow. My eyes were just pretty much opened up and I was exposed to this amazing world of basketball. And then fast forward a little bit more, we got to the end of 2008 Olympics and, and obviously our performance was far less than desirable. We won one game. We beat Mali. And we beat Mali because we decided not to go to the opening ceremony and Mali, Mali decided to probably in 40-degree humid weather in Beijing. And so we had a slight physiological advantage because we chose not to. It probably was uh, the players, I would probably say, were not happy with that decision. You know, the opening ceremony, closing ceremony, it's a pretty big deal at the Olympic Games. For me as a coach, I was, I was firmly on the coach's side with that decision. And so we, we get to the end of this amazing uh, Olympic campaign and then we're told, hey, there's no funding for the WNBL program. We don't know what you're going to be doing. So <laughs> we'd shifted Anika Kerr back from Australia to New Zealand. Kate McMeek and Rusko, we, we'd basically made, well, not made, but we'd, we'd encourage these players to move back to New Zealand and play for a New Zealand WNBL club. We thought we were on top of the world, and then all of a sudden we're looking at ourselves at the end of an Olympic review going, what the bloody hell are we going to be doing with ourselves? So for me... For me personally, how I ended up in regional Victoria and Aubrey-Wodonga was I'm just like, well, what am I going to do with all this experience? I've just been to the pinnacle of sport. I've had this amazing experience at the Olympic Games. I've just assisted with the WNBL. There's no women's league in New Zealand. What the? What am I going to bloody do? So I literally, in consultation with Lee, uh, the, the Aubrey-Wodonga Lady Bandits were looking for uh, a new coach. I applied for the job, went through that process, and you know, I made I made a really tough decision as a you know twenty three year old to effectively move to Australia. I had no family here. I had literally one friend, Lee Gooding, and yeah, I, I just decided that I'm just going to cut my teeth at the Seabull level coaching basketball, and I'm going to see how far this thing can take me. And I mean, I've always had ambitions to, I mean, at that stage, I wasn't the head coach of the New Zealand team, but once I'd been exposed to that level of basketball, international basketball, and the WNBL, it was it was pretty easy for me to, to go, well, that's really what I want to be doing. And in order for me to do that, I'm not going to do it while I'm sitting around, you know, catching fish and digging up shellfish and you know, fishing for eels in New Zealand, I need to do that. <laughs> I need to get to Australia and get working. There were very specific uh, examples you gave as well of your alternatives of staying in New Zealand. <laughs> there, was, there was legitimately a time where I was just sitting in New Zealand, living, you know, 50 metres from the beach and just living off the land. It was a great time. I mean, I, I have plenty of pastimes. Fishing is one of them. I wouldn't say I'm very good at that either, but I enjoy doing it. And did you know much about Aubrey Wodonga before you got there, like in terms of the geographical location, the population, the fact that Lauren Jackson, the goat, was born and bred in Aubrey? I did because I've been to Aubrey a few times with country cups as a junior and as a coach. So I knew it was a great place. I knew it was a place that lived and breathed basketball. I knew a very small amount about the Seabull. I knew nothing about um, you know, I knew that prior to that, I, I think Jess Bibby and Nat Hurst and, and LJ had played before. So I knew the team or well, the program had certainly had some pretty remarkable players come through it. But, you know, I, as much as I've even spent time there prior to that, I'd, the one thing that I wasn't prepared for was 45 degree weather. And, you know, I came from Christchurch with 20 degrees. <laughs> it's like a hot day and, you know, you, you could escape the heat by finding shade in New Zealand, whereas I just... I didn't realise how relentless the weather was here. And so I'm not going to lie, the first 
the first year was an adjustment, was a serious adjustment. And, you know, but I really did. I knew obviously Lauren Jackson was from Warbury. That's, you know, and then, I mean, you learn all these things through Country Cup and you learn a bit about the geographical location that it's, you know, not so much in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's a long way to Melbourne. So there were a lot of adjustments I had to make to, to making the shift here. But yeah, certainly the environment was the one, the biggest shock. And then the spiders and, you know, all the things that you're not used to in New Zealand. <laughs> and as you know, as well from Country Cup, Wodonga Stadium's air conditioned, but Aubrey back then was not. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to be honest, when it's 40 degrees, it just doesn't matter. It's just hot here blowing around the stadium. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and for anyone who watches me, Coach, you know that it, it could be the coolest stadium on the planet and I'll find a way to sweat. I mean, I will sweat more than the players during games. I mean, as soon as the frustration levels hit, I'm sweating. It's There's no um, there's no hiding that. So, I mean, I might be the, the most profuse sweating coach possibly to ever coach in the WNBL. That's actually – it's a good point. You had a couple of really big fourth-quarter comeback games. And a close loss against Perth. Since we're in the whole physiology thing, how is that for your blood pressure and your sweating? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the certainly the the more I age, the yeah, the worse the blood pressure gets. That's for sure. But look, I mean, to be honest, I mean, as as much as uh, I'll joke about it, there really is a high level of trust in in the playing group that we've got and our style of play and. I think very similar to most. I mean, you know, every team in the league, the day that your style style of play is on par, and I mean, Perth are a great example of this, when they're speeding teams up and they're playing at tempo and they're shooting the ball well from the perimeter and, you know, they've got their space and pace right, they are an incredibly tough team to play against. Um, And no different to us. I mean, I think for us, when we're defending, when we're extending our pressure, um, we're making things difficult for teams and forcing them into tough contested shots, and that generates a lot of our offensive transition. And again, we can get our spacing right offensively, and we share the ball and play great team basketball. We're a really tough team to stop. So I, I think in those those sort of situations where you, you're down, I mean, we're all competitors. I mean, we we talk, we spoke about competitiveness early in the the podcast with the league. We have an incredibly competitive group, and they're never going to. Right, and yeah, we've had a couple of less than desirable results this season. And you know, certainly as coach, that's that's my responsibility to wear those losses and, and try as hard as I can to deflect them as much of that responsibility from the team. I, you know, I, th- I think that we're certainly, if it's a close game, I, I feel pretty comfortable that we know enough about ourselves and we're confident within our style of play and we have enough trust within our playing group that we're going to make the right decisions more times than not. And, and I mean, certainly, again, that's not taking things away from other teams. I mean, there's always going to be a game plan. But we we certainly put a high level of time into our scout and our preparation and everything's very specific to build up towards games. Um, do we get it right all the time? Absolutely not. Um, do I get it right every time? Absolutely not. Certainly human and I make mistakes and, and I'm certainly willing to acknowledge those when they're certainly mine. And, and I think with, even within our group, there's a high level of self-accountability and our players are willing to put their hands up and take responsibility when it's on them also, which is it's great. It's a real pleasure to be a part of a group that that thinks that way. So, yeah, blood pressure is always high because, you know, that's just – there's that expectation and standard that you, you set for yourself 
Um, and they're the only expectations and standards we're playing towards that are our own. And so that will always create, create its own self uh, pressure. And yeah, the sweating, well, that's just here to stay. I mean, I, don't, I think there are medical treatments you can get for it. So if I ever stop sweating, you know that I've had the medical treatment to stop it. There's actually a cream I've seen on TikTok. I'll send it to you. I'm down for trying the cream for sure. I'm, I'm willing to give anything a shot at this stage. And for listeners who don't know, that's not like a joke or anything. Like there's actually this cream that comes in an orange tube. Because yeah. my uh, colleagues and I have similar problems, so we've talked about this. <laughs> dry cleaners would thank you for it. Yeah. You know, they, they get this thing that I reckon they could fill the, the local lake with. Lake Epilock could get filled with the amount of sweat that comes down the bush. <laughs> and you've talked about as well uh, before about developing, you know, your leadership group in amongst, you know, Wilson, Griffin, Levy as well, uh, having this X factor. So how instrumental has that been for, you know, giving your team an edge this season? Yeah, look, I, I think for first and foremost, I mean, any successful program, any program that wants to be a, a championship contender needs to have credible leaders. And those credible leaders are the players that have walked the walk, that have, you know, either won championships, played in national teams, played in the WNBL. I mean, people that have really experienced life and experienced basketball and, you know, they don't come any better than a 420-plus gamer or uh, a player that's won four championships and, and played, you know, a top three draft pick in the WNBA. I mean, we really have an incredible amount of talent and leadership. And I, I think even when you go through, I mean, even someone is young as an Abby Warung who's, you know, played for Australia, um, played at the last Asia Cup. There's a multitude of it, mainly obviously with her recent experiences with the WNBA, the Chicago Sky, the Opals at the World Championships. And I think what our group has a real appreciation for is there's a leader for every situation. And not every leader we have in our team is vocal. Not every leader in our team is willing to pull the team in and huddle them up and give their perspective on what they're seeing and how we can make adjustments. Some some of our players are just lead by example type players that will just go out and get the job done. And uh, certainly, you know, we've got Lady who's played a two Olympic games. Uh, there's just an incredible amount. And I think our group really has a, a really intricate respect and understanding for there's a different leader for every situation. Yeah, we have two co-captains in Kelly and, and Kelsey. And I mean, certainly, I'm just I'm going through this process, the review process with players right now, and the amount of a lot of players just having never played with Kelly before or never played with KG, and uh, I think they're not so much their perception on on who they are, or the types of players. I think their success speaks for itself, but just not ever having that understanding. Of, wow, this is this is what it feels like to have real leadership within our team, and and that's been an honest comment I've had from a couple of players that. I've never had leadership like this. I've never had a leadership where our two veterans are the ones out working everyone at training sessions and they're the last ones to leave. They're the first ones to show up. They're always doing extras. They're, they set the example in the gym. I mean, our, our gym sessions uh, are crazy. I mean, you know, the amount of work this group's putting in and the amount of opt-in extras they do and so, I mean, look, just having people that can walk the walk and talk the talk, and I've already said this already, that's just set the example by everything, whether that be in the community, whether that be public presentations and public speaking or running camps. We're incredibly blessed with the, the level of leadership we have within this group and experience, but that's just across the board. I mean, that's literally from player number one to 18th 
player, even our, even our junior kids, they get it. So curiosity here, what about engaging with the community? Because, you know, this is something that I'm always curious about, particularly for the clubs that are in the smaller centres. How do you guys find that the team interacts with the community and the support of the community for the team? Well, the support has certainly been something that's been growing. Uh, again, I wasn't fortunate enough to, to play any away games here last season, but what I can only go by is what I saw on telly or what the players had told me, you know, and I think the numbers have really increased at, at home games. I mean, I mean, certainly I've said this to our team, the more we can engage in the community, the more we can involve the community here and not just Bendigo. I understand we are the Bendigo spirit, but we also have a greater understanding that we're a regional-based program and we have responsibility. I mean, we, we have relationships with Mildura. Um, I know the Boomers do a great job of servicing Terrellgan and, and that end, but we want to grow this brand throughout regional Victoria. And in order to have a full stadium, and I be- truly believe that this amazing group of women that I'm privileged to be a part of, they deserve to have a full stadium every game, but we also understand that, well, one, our community engagement is a huge part of that, but also performance. And you've got to perform. I mean, the sad reality is that the team, if you don't perform, people don't come to watch you. I mean, that's – but at the same time, you've got to get out in the community. And I, and I truly believe if we're getting that part right, we're going to continuously get kids that want to come and watch at Kelsey Griffin or Natalie Maley. And I think our group's done a great job of growing the brand within the community. And, you know, whether that be presence at camps, uh, going to – you know, the Bendigo tournament that was just on the weekend. Um, we've got people that come out from all parts of regional Victoria to watch us play, and, and that's great. I mean, in terms of post-game, players are staying around. We're doing photos and signatures and radio. and I mean, there's, there's a multitude of work, and most of it's far beyond my comprehension and capabilities. We've got a, an, an amazing GM, um, David Ingham, who helps coordinate all that community engagement. You know, certainly I can't ever sit here and take any credit for the amount of planning and organisation that he does for this group here. Um, but our, our players are very active. I mean, you know, just starting next week, because obviously all the after-school programs start back up, you know, our, our group will be helping out with the biddy ball here locally and Aussie Hoops. A number of our players coach, Megan Mackay, was one of the coaches with the under-18 Bendigo team here locally. So I think our players are certainly doing their part. You know, we'd always love to be doing more. It'd be great if that was a full-time job. And all we did was, besides basketball, of course, was, was getting out in the community and, and visiting schools. And But I think certainly from our perspective, we're doing a, a good amount. Could we be doing more? Absolutely. And do we want to be doing more? Absolutely, we do. Even from my perspective as coach, I've opened up. Our sessions are open to anyone in the public, provided you don't, you know, you're not the coach of... <laughs> any of the other Melbourne teams. Um, but we've certainly, I've, I mean, we've got connections within regional Victoria. I mean, the majority of our coaches are part of the state programs, um, whether that be 18s all the way through the under-16s. Um, Zoe Carr, obviously, 160-plus gamer with the WNBL. Um, you know, she's the high-performance manager for regional Victoria. So we've got some really, really good connection pieces and I've invited any regional Victorian coach to come spend time with the program. We've had a number of NBA one coaches come and spend time with the Spirit. So we're certainly doing as much as we can. And I think probably, you know, next year, I hope to see us doing a whole lot more in that space. I'm kind of curious about 
how you're seeing your run towards the end of the season. Where do you see the, the threats for the team and what are you seeing out there that something that could throw a spanner in the works? Yeah, well, I think there are a number of things. I mean, for us, this, this is going to sound cliche and this is going to be the answer. This is the company line for every coach this time of the year. It's one game at a time. <laughs> I really don't want to I don't want to be that coach, but the reality is when your destiny's in your own hands. For me, I'm a one game at a at a time type of coach and my focus will not firmly remove itself from the boomers until the final buzzer on Sunday and then of course it's Southside from that point onwards. I mean, I think when you get to this point of the year, you have the, the fortune of being able to watch every game and seeing every team. You you know, you've compiled a lot of notes and scouts on certain teams and most teams aren't changing too much at this point. Um, maybe there's a few additions. So I think most things are pretty constant. We're talking about scout, but from us, it's from a Benigo spirit standpoint, it's again just making sure we're staying true to what we set out in terms of our style of play. Uh, you know, whether that be again, we spoke. I spoke earlier about we want to be a defensive focused team. I mean, at one stage we were the best defensive team in the league, and by that, I'm, the only measure I had was the amount of points we gave up on average. Now, yeah, we we slipped halfway through the season. I mean, right now I think we're holding teams to seventy eight on average, which is a, a bit off where we where we started. It's about 10 points more. We are originally holding teams to about 68 points. We want to try and get that back down to high 80s, very low 70s at best. I mean, so for us, when we're, when we're defending and we're extending our pressure up the floor and when we're playing great team basketball. So I think for a lot of us, and certainly for our team, it's about making sure that we're playing the brand of basketball we set out to, to play from the outset. And I mean, I think for teams now, I mean, you saw Townsville last night ran a masterclass for at least a half until Perth made a good run back at them in the third. I, I think for, the, for those teams, much the same to Perth when, when they're playing their game, which, which is a running game with pace and space and shooting the ball well, they're tough. So I, I think for us, it's really just one game at a time, playing to our identity as much as we can, making sure that every player within this team has their, their three to four focuses only. Um, we certainly don't want, you know, to be encumbering people with multitudes of responsibility. And I think really having that narrowed focus on, well, what can I bring to this team right now that's going to help us win? And that's that's really all we're focused on for the time being. And, and obviously, like most things, health, keeping people healthy. Teams have injuries, you know. Look, look at Townsville right now. They, they did incredibly well. You, you look at that game without no Steph Reid, no Lauren Nicholson, that's a big win for them. And, you know, obviously Perth getting the boomers without Sammy Wickham at the end of the last round, massive. So and no different to us getting the boomers without KG. Those things are probably focuses more than anything is making sure people are, have a, a laser beam focus on what they can bring to the team, what your strengths are right now. And we're not, I mean, every team has deficits, but certainly at this time of the year, I'm trying to highlight as many of the things we do incredibly well as much as possible because I think those are important. I mean, confidence is important. Health is important. And I think for danger games, for us, I mean, I think for every team, <laughs> there's a danger game. But if I look at the teams beside, you know, there's obviously Perth, Southside, you know, the Boomers, us, and just looking at my... Perth, I'm sorry, I mean, there's there's five of us. 
I think if, if I'm actually looking at those other four teams, I mean, they have some danger games. I mean, Perths will have to play Adelaide again after Townsville twice, Adelaide twice, and the UC Caps. Uh, the Boomers obviously play us. Well, they played the Lynx, then they've got us. They've got Townsville, and they've got Sydney twice, and the UC Caps. So all the other four teams actually have three really big danger games now, the teams with the top five teams play each other, well, obviously, we're going to accumulate wins and losses off one another. But I think those games, to be honest, they're danger games for those teams because, again, this Adelaide have proven, UC Caps have proven, and obviously against us, they've proven that on their day, they can be competitive every day, but on their day, they're, they're capable of beating any team. Um, but I've really got to tip my hat to, you know, to Veerly, you know, to have your, your entire roster almost, not completely, but decimated at different times of injuries in your first season, I mean, I could not, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. I don't, I don't have any enemies, but that is tough. And the way she's got this group playing, it's just incredible. Like, and they're gutsy, they're gritty, they're, they're smiling, they're having fun while they do it. I mean, they're, they're no, no coach or no team sitting out to lose games, but they've been great. I mean, what a revelation seeing some of these young kids out with the tails up, playing with that, with, with the swagger they're playing with. Oh, again, and, and the same for Nat. I mean, you know, much the same. Nat's got that group playing pretty damn good basketball. And there are some really good teams in the league. So, oh, again, I, I'm certainly not going to throw criticism. And, then you, and you look at um, Shelley. You know, Shelley's taken over the, the Sydney team and th- they were competitive and tough prior to that but you know to be put in that situation where you're now the coach at the end of the season and again I'll tip my hat to all the coaches in the league I just think they will do a bloody incredible job and we know that we do it with you know very limited resources in most situations and and I know from my time coaching West Coast or well, now the Lynx there was just no resources no money so to see where the league's grown to in the 16 years I've been a part of it it's just incredible to see where it's at now and um and there's a sense of gratitude, but there's also a sense of, hey, we want more. We deserve more. We work for it. Uh, these, this, these players, <laughs> they work their backsides off. And, you know, I mean, again, but it's one thing at a time. There certainly has been evolution, but, you know, I, I would love to see more. I, I think, you know, I'd love to see more and more resource poured into women's sport. And and I think it's just great to, to see that we're at the point where we are now where, there is more, um, but we want more. <laughs> How greedy are we? <laughs> Says the guy wearing the WNBA T-shirt. Love it. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Now, before I hand over to, to Jacinta, because I know there's a question that she wants to put to you, there's been some criticism that we've seen out on social media about you know some of these teams that haven't been doing so well, and you touched on that. Canberra's one that comes to mind. My, my personal opinion is, for a team that had a lot of restructuring, has a new coach, and has had, like you rightly said, a, such an astoundingly bad run of luck in terms of injury, I think that criticism is totally improper. You, you just can't criticise a team that, that's done that. Do you have any ideas that, that, that you want to throw out there as to why you get this sort of feedback when it's pretty obvious that they're coming from, from a really bad position particularly, you know, the Caps and Veeley, and they've done an astounding job this season. Absolutely. I mean, I can't comment on people's situations in terms of why they would choose to to pass judgment on probably situations they very much know 
a very small portion of the information. And, and generally for most people, the information they see is the information they know. And, you know, I think unless you're – it's so tough because criticism is a part of coaching. Criticism is a part of elite sport. It's certainly not a welcome part of it, you know, whether that be elite women's sport or, you know, you see it in AFL – uh, and even AFLW, like that business with Taylor Harris is just discussing some of the comments, you know, that y- you see and, and hear about and just unwarranted. You know what? I mean, I'll say this. I mean, we obviously, again, sports a diverse realm where anyone from any walk of earth is welcome. That's the great thing about and especially basketball. I mean, we have all abilities basketball. We have walking basketball. We have – you can play basketball from the cradle to the grave effectively and – all walks of life, all ethnic groups are, are welcome. And that's what I love about the game. Um, some of the things that really frustrate me about the sport is is some of the the unwarranted comments that people make that are uneducated. And I mean, I've got kids that my, my children come to watch the games um, and some of the stuff that potentially can be said and by maybe people who are really passionate supporters, but they don't need it. You know, I've got a three, oh, he's almost three, he doesn't need to hear some of the stuff that comes out of people's mouths. It's just disgusting. I mean, you know, and I mean, there are certainly, obviously, there, there are some examples I can give, and I don't, I'd prefer not to. I'd rather keep the, the space in, the, in as much of a positive light as I can. You know, really, if that is your MO to come to watch any sport, I don't care whether it's men's sport, women's sport, um, why are you there? Like, you've got to ask yourself the question, why are you there and why are you supporting it if, if – that's all you can bring to the table. And and I think a level of empathy, I think sometimes we just, we can lack empathy and not have a greater understanding of what, coaches' jobs are not easy. I certainly, I've had some really rough times coaching, you know, with the national program in, in the WNBL. It's a really lonely place and, and you really never have a greater understanding of it until you've actually walked that path. So for me, I'm sitting here and I go, you know, I know, I know what this is like for coaches to deal with injury issues. And, you know, if you use the Caps as an example, even Adelaide, they, they were both finals teams last year. I mean, we're talking about two players that are now transitioning to coaching. This is the dream. As far as I'm concerned, if you are a Caps supporter or you are an Adelaide supporter, we're talking about two people that played the game to the highest level, both represented the country, both did it at a pretty bloody damn like – they were – consistently championship winning contenders played the game the right way um, were always an incredible sh- just I, could, I, I mean I was unfortunate enough to coach against both of them you know and can't say there'd be too many times where I was in a situation where, where I was on the winning side against either Nat or or Veerly and now they've transitioned to the coaching and this is an exciting time for them um, so really what we should be doing is we should be throwing as much damn support at them as we possibly can because this is bloody awesome. We're getting two new coaches in the league, you know, the WNBL, and, and I'm thankful for this. We do a very good job of recycling coaches, so I'm very thankful for it myself. This is my second run at it. But we're getting some new blood in, and <laughs> they're, they're trying to do new things and, and throw new ideas out there and play new styles and brands of basketball. This is what we want. Oh, we don't want to see us coaches all running the same offense and the same brand of damn basketball. I like, have bloody boring. Like, we've, got, we've got some people out here doing something different and that's awesome and that's exciting. But you think of both the Caps and the, the Adelaide programs, they were both, I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but Paul Goris, that's a tough act to follow. 
Goz is a really, really, really damn good coach. I'm I'm so incredibly blessed to have that that 12 months. And out of that is now a, a great friendship. I speak to Goz on a regular. I'm so glad I spent some time in Canberra with him and with that program. But, you know, that, that's always going to be a tough act to follow. So they've had a, an amazing championship window. It's no different to West Coast when I was there and, and the Perth Lynx. So, you know, we struggled. We we weren't good. It wasn't because we weren't trying. It wasn't because we weren't training or doing the scouting or doing individual workouts or had a strength and conditioning program. We had all those things that I've got now. We had back then, but we still weren't performing. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Perth Wildcats buy it and they punch a little more resource in and voila, they're championship contenders. And I mean, every club's going to go through championship windows. It's a, that sport. I mean, no one's on top forever unless you're the All Blacks. Or ten US. Yeah, let, let's not talk about the All Blacks, okay? Let's let's just leave that one alone. <laughs> I thought I'd just throw that one in there. So I'd rather you did. The only one I can for is New Zealand. It's the only one I can throw in there. You're getting very Aussie there at a point where you were saying bloody awesome, and I was like, oh, here we go. Now you've chucked in the All Blacks. I was like, and we're back. <laughs> I love the variety. I love the variety of both worlds. I was going to ask you. I mean, you've just spoken so well about you know, giving some insight into like the realities of coaching and the benefits of having a variety of different coaches from a variety of different backgrounds as players or otherwise coming into the league. I agree. Makes it much more interesting, makes the league more competitive. There was a period of time, whether it was NBL one level or WNBL, where everyone was running a horn set and it did get a bit tired. Time and a place for a horn set but not when it's back and forth, each team doing a horn set back and forth like a tennis game. But speaking of coaches, I wanted to know who some of your most influential coaches have been through your career as a player or as a coach and some of the, uh, I guess, the more pinnacle pieces you've taken from each coach to shape you into your own identity. Yeah, that's that's an awesome question. I mean, that that's a really easy answer. There's probably three per country. And if I was to start with New Zealand, there were three really influential coaches in my development as a player and coach. And the funny thing is that all of those coaches that were my coaches as a player, I ended up coaching with when I was starting my coaching journey in New Zealand. And the first one would have to be my institute coach, which is which is a gentleman by the name of Phil Burns. And, and Phil Burns was... Um, he, he had a degree in philosophy, believe it or not. It was, and he was a very intelligent man, an amazing talker, one of the best motivators. Just knew exactly what to say, knew how to captivate an audience, knew how to inspire you. And I don't give those types of talks. I, that I always, you know, team. Hey, well, I'm going to talk about the facts here. <laughs> I'm very matter of fact guy when it comes to game day. But uh, Phil Burns just had this ability to be able to inspire you. He also had this ability to make you feel like the smallest person on the earth too. And I think all coaches have that ability sometimes, as is, is, is sad as it is to say. But uh, Phil just – I think it was the care factor too. You know, I mean, I've never – I was certainly – growing up in New Zealand, had a pretty rough upbringing, you know, lived below the pottery line and having guys like him who were prepared to put their hands in their pockets and, and make sure you were taken care of. And, and just there's not – I couldn't speak any more highly of, of a human being and, and really he's probably the main reason why I am where I am today. 
you know, he was pretty much like a father to me. And he actually spoke at mine and my wife Chelsea's wedding. Flew over and, and you know, he, he spoke at a wedding. He was just an amazing human being. And I look, there's not enough airtime that I could honestly, that could justify that you have time to listen to that I could give to tell you how much I, I love and respect him. Um, he's just an amazing human being. And we still talk on a regular basis now. And, Another one was by – look, sorry, just to quickly go back, Phil actually was the assistant coach of the Tall Ferns when I was at the Institute. So it wasn't like he was just the the local basketball coach that we had. He, he was an NBL assistant coach for many years. I coached Canterbury to a number of WNBL championships when there was a New Zealand Women's League. He was a very, very credentialed coach. Um, and then my high school coach, um, his name was Bert Knops. No one would know who he is here in Australia, but he actually played for the Tall Blacks and he was the head coach of the Canterbury Rams, which was the men's NBL team in New Zealand. Um, he was my high school coach and also my representative coach. Um, coming through and and I think the one thing I really took away from Bert was he was about ownership uh, he, it was a lot of player-led ownership but he'd always hold you accountable to decisions you made and um, he was an excellent skills coach he was literally a coach in his 50s that and this is when I was at school that just quickly offshoot because you have to hear this story but we had a one-court stadium at school I think most probably schools do I don't know we had big stadiums like in the US and we have two baskets, obviously a basket at each end and then two baskets either side. So it's six baskets in total. And handwritten in permanent marker, I think you call them Sharpies here in, in Australia. <laughs> we call them Vivids in New Zealand. They're called a Vivid. And it's do not dunk these hoops. And the reason <laughs> the reason why, that, this is a true story, one day at lunchtime, we used to get in there at lunchtime and we just literally throw down dunks, just do the, the, the lap of honour. If you could do six dunks in a row and the, the lap of honour, you know, that was like, I don't know, I, I couldn't tell you, it was like being Michael Jordan anyway, you know, you get treated with that sort of um, level of prestige in school. So one day we're, we're literally trying this and, you know, I, I think I'm, I was very good for about three hoops and then I was fatigued by that stage. Probably the amount of fish and chips I ate as a, as a high school kid. And... <laughs> One day, not, not a word of a lie, Bert Knops comes out of his office. He has this office in the top right corner on the baseline side of the school. And he's like, what are you doing practicing dunks? Should be practicing jump shots. Snatched the ball out of one of the guy's hands and did a two-feet, two-hand dunk. The guy's 50 years old. Barely foot two. I mean, he, and look, he played for the Tall Blacks. He was, and he went to the gym every day. It was amazing. And just... I'm on the backboard now. I'm 39. So, so Bert, for a number of reasons, just everything. He was a great defensive coach. He he believed in continuity offense. He had and, and continuity offense for equal opportunity offense, so to speak, where everybody had to play reposition. Everybody had to be multi-skilled. But the things I really took away was, like most coaches, level of care, ownership, you know, giving you true ownership, but guidance, you know, through that, not just, hey, you can choose A or B and then leave you to your own devices. And, and But he'd talk you through this, those decisions and why do you, why'd you make that decision? And if you had the chance to make the decision, would you change your decision? And he's just uh, an incredible mentor. And, and the last one is a guy by the name of Terry Brunel who actually played in the NBL in New Zealand and he was probably one of New Zealand's best skills coaches, um, great shooting coach. And... 
So for me, it was just the, the amount, the level of fundamental skills he preached and, and coached at a number of different levels was something that I took away from him. I mean, whether that be footwork and whether that be cross-step footwork, onside footwork, there was just a multitude. And so I was just really, and that's not without naming half the other coaches that I can name in New Zealand, but it was just incredibly blessed to have what I would consider some of the cream of the crop coaches based in New Zealand really put me in a in an awesome position to to learn and think the game of basketball. And But not only that, just those, those skills where you're, you know, holding people accountable, but giving player-led and athlete ownership. And I think a lot of those coaches were well ahead of their time because, you know, you think about the 90s and early 2000s, you know, a lot of these, the things that people talk about now, just they weren't around back then. It was very much raw meat and potatoes type basketball back in the day. And I just, I, I always feel really sorry for anyone who was coached by me last year or the year before I go, I feel sorry for them because I'm a much better coach now. I know so much more. And that's that's the growth factor of a coach is, well, you know, I want to be better every year. I want to be better every day as a coach. And look, oh, just very briefly, within Australia here, Probably all in one, Mike McHugh, Lee Gooding and Sean Dennis were three very early ones for me because they were all involved in the New Zealand national program. Again, when I was in my infancy of, of coaching at that level, they were certainly the ones who, who most guided me or gave me opportunity and, and put faith and trust in, in me to, you know, whether that be scout or, or take small portions of training sessions and, and really help mould and shape me very early in my international coaching career. But look, to be honest, these days, I I speak a lot with Guy Malloy. Um, Guy, Chris Lucas, uh, I mean, most are generally peers within the, you know, WNBL that I've had some involvement with. I mean, both Chris and Guy I've worked with in the New Zealand National Program. And they talk about guys who make your job easier. I would never, they certainly weren't assistant coaches. They were more like mentors to me while I was in that that role with the uh, national team. Again, just incredibly fortunate to have a, a multitude of people that I can pick up the phone and speak to at any time. Um, yeah, just feel incredibly blessed just <laughs> just to have that level of expertise only a phone call away. Sean Dennis in particular, I remember being coached by him at a couple of camps here or there when I was about to finish juniors or just like the couple years out of juniors. I think he was the first coach for me who didn't approach Uh, coaching or how he spoke to you with that kind of fake level of authoritarianism if that's a word like he didn't have that fake sense of being an authority figure he still just spoke to you as you would speak to anyone else but still deliver the instruction as a coach and that always just caught me like in a good way just off guard because it was like we're so used to having someone like you know in our generation it's not the same now but someone like barking at you someone putting a bit of fear into you to make sure you're doing the right thing but this guy, like, yeah, he always stuck in my mind because he would just explain it to you how he would explain it to one of his coaching peers. So love that he left an impression on you as well. Oh, and he's, he's doing great things in Japan right now. I mean, Sean might be one of the most underrated coaches going around. I mean, obviously really sad what happened with Townsville and, and that situation there where, you know, he was effectively put in a position where he had to consider overseas opportunities. I think he's a huge loss to, to Australian basketball. And, you know, I really hope that 
sometime soon the you know men's league and the men's NBL or, or whether that be women's basketball or whoever is in a position to to gain a great uh, custodian of the sport is in a position to bring him back and I wanted to ask one more thing uh, you know, going on a bit of a left turn now, but when you were mentioning before about you're talking about Bendigo season and you said uh, part of your game plan and, you know, team plan is to stick to your identity as a team. Now, for me, Bendigo, what I like about Bendigo, whether it's this season or the past few seasons, they always play with a sense of urgency, like it's going to be their last game that they're ever going to play in their life. At you as a coach and you as a team, what is your what is the identity that you are upholding? Yeah, I like the example you used, and believe it or not, I literally used the example less than a week ago that that's that's the way you want to be playing, as if you just do not know when it's going to be your last game of basketball. Um, certainly can't say that I that that's our identity. But look, for us, I, I would I would like to think that what it looks like from uh, a viewer's perspective is that this is certainly a team that's prepared to do hard things and, and work and outwork their opposition. Um, and as I've obviously already mentioned, you know, extending our defence and, and constantly working to the point of exhaustion is almost what you want to try to achieve um, without getting to that point. I mean, it's obviously my job to to rotate subs and keep people fresh. Um, do we get it right every time? No, we don't. Um, do we get it right more times? We've certainly got it right more times than we have in the rest. We wouldn't be 11 and 5 at this this stage of the season. But I think from outworking our opposition, willing to do hard things, constantly extending our defensive pressure, but I think just playing great team basketball. And, and again, we don't – we have a pretty – I wouldn't say it's a simple offensive system, but we certainly have a system of play where there's a high level of autonomy where people get to play their brand of basketball and get to play a flair and get to play some freedom within some very small confines that that allow us to do that. But I also think we have the intelligence within our group to know, well, okay, if Maley's having a great game, we know exactly what actions to run within our system to be able to find Annalie looks now. You're pretty lucky with a player like Annalie because she'll generate most of our own offense or offensive rebounds, getting out in transition, being on the end of passes, cutting, et cetera. So you're incredibly blessed. But I think our group has that level of knowledge that, you know, if it's an Alex Wilson day or if it's a, everywhere on a few possessions like the first half against the Boomers, we have that type of team that we're happy to see other people succeed. And we're happy when it's great if we can have a team where a multitude of players are in double figures. And I mean, if you look at any of our best games, it's anywhere between five to six to sometimes seven players in double figures. And we're keeping teams generally to fairly low scores or at least below their averages. And they're probably the telltale signs of whether we're playing to our identity or not. And, and obviously in any situation where we're not, well, you know, it's, it's either a very competitive game or it's a less than desirable result. Okay, so before we wind up, we always do have a, a totally unscripted question. So are, are you a reader or a movie watcher? <laughs> he's a coach, he's a movie watcher. <laughs> You're right. Now, and that's, believe it or not, I, I've actually just, uh, I just recently bought two books. on, oh. on part <laughs> I'm partway through one, and that is. Um, <laughs> is it a Phil Jackson book or like a. That Ryan no, book or something. It's a David Goggins book, actually, and it's never finished. And that's that's been a really, really interesting one. And the other ones, um, <laughs> believe it or not, it's going to make you laugh, is 
off the grid, off the grid survival. <laughs> I'm, I'm prepping for when the coaching, uh, the coaching journey is over and I have to move off the grid from uh, all the upset people that I've, I've upset over the years. No, uh, no, really. Honestly, I actually have bought that. I, I just saw the book recently and it intrigued me. Prior to that, I'd actually read a, a really interesting book, um, which is still to this day my favourite book of all time, and that's How to Build and Sustain a Championship Winning Culture by um, a gentleman um, called Jeff Jansen. And he actually produces some really very good content. He's actually on Twitter and he's definitely worth a follow all about building culture. And, and I've already referenced a couple of things to him earlier, but the, the reality is I actually enjoy watching movies more. Documentaries, docu-series, movies. I'm a real visual learner, and, and that's I, I think that's for most coaches, we generally are very visual. I'd love to read more, and I'd like to read more, and I, and I'm, I think that's probably the space where I've got to challenge myself um, to find more time to read. The, the most reading I do is when I read to my sons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so given that it's movies, yep. we have to ask, out of all the movie characters that you've ever seen on screen, which one do you most relate with? Oh, oh goodness. I've watched Game of Thrones and Vikings a whole lot of times, but it's not really a movie. They're, they're, they're more TV series. So That's okay. Really That'll like... work. Yeah, that can, that can still count. That can still count. Oh, I won't use a Game of Thrones one. I think there's, that's just that's far too – well, they're both wild. They're both very violent shows. Um yeah, well, I think all us coaches are pretty special people in our own right. We're all a little strange. So I'm going to have to say if it's Vikings, I'll say Floki the Boat Builder because <laughs> uh, he's a, he's partly genius, but he's a lot he's a whole lot of crazy too with the, the boat building skills. So I'm going to say that's a probably really bad example, but that's the one I'm going with. <laughs> all right, so when, when we head down to uh, the next Bendigo game, we'll be yelling out Coach Floki instead of <laughs> Coach Kennedy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only people that know what's going on will certainly be me and maybe John White, the assistant coach. I know he sort of just recently got into the whole Vikings thing. So it's, uh, I don't know why those shows, they're the, they're the two shows that I've, <laughs> I tend to watch the most. But movies, yeah, I could, we could really fall down a pretty big rabbit hole with, uh, with movies. I think I, I mostly said probably movies off the instinct that coaches don't get a lot of time, like downtime. So I imagine that the downtime would be something watching something because it's a little less brain power when it's happening in front of you instead of having to absorb a book. Absolutely, and I and I think that's to be honest. When I'm watching things, I'm not really watching things. I'm just I'm present, but I'm possibly sleeping with my eyes open, just inadvertently um, taking in that information um, as best I can. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there probably are. The one thing I'll probably say about coaching, and I think for most coaches, we do find it really difficult to switch off. And I know I certainly do. And I'm actually not even – I'm in Bendigo right now and my family are back in Melbourne and they'll spend time here, but then I'll get home whenever I can. And, I mean, we have a, a family home in, in Melbourne. And for me personally, I, I really find it – if I haven't ticked off X amount of boxes, I haven't planned training or – there's something basketball going on in my life. I find it really hard to be able to switch off and just play with the kids. So I've, I've really got a – being really organised and methodical and well planned out is so important for me because I really find it – I can't – it's for, impossible for me to be able to wind down and relax if I haven't ticked off all the boxes I need to tick off from a, a basketball standpoint. And it makes it doubly difficult because my wife was a 
training player and played with the the boomers back in six and seven and seven and eight and she played you know she played 350 plus Siebel games so played to a, a pretty good level and you know to be honest she should probably be the one on this podcast because she actually knows bloody more about basketball than I do and to be honest I mean really I'm being really honest she's definitely the better coach out of the two of us you know most of my ideas are generally her ideas, but it, I don't ever tell her that. It's like she'll give me an idea, and I'm like, "Nah, it's, that's stupid." And then the next day, it's my idea. So that's <laughs> that is the secret to being a really successful wife: is that making your husband think that it was his idea. <laughs> there's a level of genius in that, I think. So um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. You know, Chelsea's been awesome, and she she really supports me, and I've obviously being the the best version of myself and coach I can possibly be and, and really supports me in this role with the spirit and so I'm yeah I'm incredibly blessed and she does a body of work with our two boys at home so I'm yeah I'm really uh so damn lucky and so my my last silly question is for someone who admittedly ate too much fish and chips as a teenager when we go to New Zealand and check out the next season of the pro league over there where should we go and get our fish and chips that's See, now that's the thing. In New Zealand, you can get from one co- one side of the coast to the other in four hours or less. So it's not like if you go to a, a regional centre here or you're in the middle of, you know, the Nullarbor, you're in Wedge or somewhere like that or Fraser's Station, you, you know, it's not going to be some frozen fish that comes out of the the freezer. In New Zealand, everywhere you go, it's going to be fresh. There's, there's no bad places. What you're going to find, though, is you're going to have more money in your bank account at the end of that because – that was a big adjustment for me in Australia. I came to Australia like, yeah, I'll have some, you know, fish and some chips and whatever. I had to learn names like Hake and Flake. It was just, yeah, just give me some fish, you know, in New Zealand. But then when they told me it was like 20, I'm like, 20 bucks? 20, 20 bucks? I could feed my whole damn neighborhood in New Zealand. Like, you know, like there wouldn't be a starving person left in my community for $20 in New Zealand. But here... Admittedly, I've, I've gotten past that now. I think it's relative, you know. Maybe in some places the, the fish is better. I mean, there's definitely some really good spots here I've, I've learned over time. But I only get fish and chips once a year now. It's not New Zealand I'd have it once a week. Where <laughs> here, once a year, that's all I can afford. I've got to, you know, I'm on the WNBL coach's wage here. I've got to save up a whole year to be able to afford it. <laughs> I, I would honestly say you're pretty safe anywhere, but definitely better on coastal areas. And, yeah, I mean, look, to be honest, anywhere along the coast of New Zealand, probably on the west coast is going to be the best. And definitely the south. I mean, I'm a South Islander, so I'm always going to be biased towards the south. The south Island's going to give you the best fish and chips on the west coast for sure. Okay. Coach Kennedy, thanks so much for your time. It's been great having you on. It's been great covering off a whole range of different topics, including where to get the best fish and chips in New Zealand. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing how the Bendigo spirit performs over the rest of the season and going into the postseason. Thanks so much for your time. No, thank, thank you very much for having me and, and look forward to, uh, to listening to more of the episodes over the, uh, the coming 2023. Great. Thanks so much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.